Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway here with Cameron Conway, and we are one today. Happy birthday, podcast. Happy birthday. It's been 52 weeks of us talking to you, you listening to us. Hopefully you coming to our Facebook uh, page to come say hi and congratulate us on all our hard work over this time. But really, thank you once again for listening. We've been blown away by the reception that we've got, and we are happy to continue. And like we've been saying in the last couple episodes, Happy to get your feedback just so that we can navigate this podcast to whatever it is you're interested in listening to, within our knowledge scope, of course. Yeah, I know uh, personal finance in Canada is a bit of a niche topic, so we thank all of you for your support, for the tens upon tens of thousands of downloads, the 1,400 subscribers, and everyone else who stopped by the Facebook page, and just thank you for the support, and uh, we're looking forward to what we get to talk about over the next year now. So today we're going to talk about something that I've been thinking about for quite some time now. This one's a little bit near and dear to my heart. We are going to be going through some of the key concepts of a book called Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio. And a quick disclaimer, you can't just go find this at a bookstore. This is uh, the freebie you get for joining his uh, email list. So if you actually want to kind of track it down. I think you can buy it on Amazon too, but absolutely, he's giving this away for free for those that subscribe. So we'll put the link up in our description if you're interested at all. And for those that have been listening for a while, you'll know I'm a big Ray Dalio fan. I couldn't tell you anything about sports, but of course, I love Ray Dalio. <laughs> uh, and I think that his knowledge and what he's telling us in this is about as close to a crystal ball as we're going to get for the things to come in the current economic uh, situation, especially as it regards to monetary policy. And the reason that I say that is because what he does is he's looked back over literally centuries of history and put together the rise and fall of empires, of countries, and their cycles. So the big debt crisis is, is all about cycles, which is just to say that while circumstances change, human nature doesn't. And we seem to find ourselves throughout history in these same patterns that keep repeating themselves over and over again, because number one, we get ourselves into the same trouble, i.e. borrowing too much money. And when you get out of these troubles, there are only so many options. So there's usually a little bit of fumbling around by the central banks and the, the parties in charge trying to figure out which measure is the best. But then ultimately, there's a deleveraging that occurs and some normalization. So that's what we're going to be talking through today. Yeah, so really the core of his research is to predict the future by studying the past. And this is what he used at Bridgewater Associates. They've got some AI algorithms kind of helping on the back end. But really it's figuring out what caused previous crashes, how people got out of it, and what's the probability that we can do it again cleanly right now? Or on the other hand, what's the probability of doom and gloom? Well, and that's why I think it's kind of a good thing that they're using... AI or algorithms uh, to essentially decipher this because 
we all have our own biases that we kind of read into different situations. And Ray Dalio, because of the success and the scope and the size of his firm, he's had the ability to talk to key members of government, key members of influential groups, and even in different countries as well. So there's there's an added layer, I think, of experience that comes with that. But for, you know, lay people, you and me, trying to kind of figure this stuff out, this is a great starting point. So again, highly recommend anyone that's interested in a very deep dive on this to, uh, to check out the book. But let me pull one of the core concepts, which I think is very, very interesting here. And it's essentially to say that one person's debt is another person's assets or another organization's assets. So when you look at it as that much of a simplification, anything that you consider an asset, like let's say housing, your home, typically has, especially if it's a new purchase, a corresponding debt attached to it. And in the same way, one person's income is another person's spending. So if I'm servicing that mortgage and I'm spending money on that, for the bank that I've used, that is essentially their income. So anytime you're dealing with bubbles, when you're dealing with asset values increasing largely, and as a result of that, the debts increasing largely and the servicing payments increasing largely, the whole system kind of works together in a very integrated way because one person's debt is another person's assets and one person's spending is another person's income. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So let's cycle right back to the very beginning. Yeah. So for the rest of the podcast, we want to kind of take you through the entire seven step process on how a rise and fall and normalcy comes up again. So we'll just kind of, we'll give you the spoiler right now. So number one, we have the early part of the cycle. Then two is the bubble. Three is the top. Four is the depression, which is where we are heading right now. Five is beautiful deleveraging. Six is the quote unquote pushing on a string. And seven is normalization. So let's just kind of work our way through the whole cycle of everyone is happy and spending money and joy. And then let's move into the doom and gloom, which will persist for a while until we get back to normal again. That's right. And to be clear, none of this is our own independent thought. This is completely very heavily borrowed from this book. So let's look at the early part of the cycle. So like you would imagine, in the early part of a cycle, life is pretty good. And that's characterized by things like debt not growing faster than income. So debt growth can be strong. That's a good thing. Debt can be positive if it's being used to finance activities that produce income growth or that support GDP. So good examples of this can be like businesses expanding that can create good productivity and support revenue growth. Yeah, for some like real world examples, the early part of the cycle would be like 2003 after the dot-com bubble crash, where things start to rise up and people start to spend more. Or even more recently, you could be looking at like mid-2020 after we started coming to the very bottom of like the COVID stock crash, where people are getting optimistic. There is just trillions of dollars of cash being thrown at like some giant snowball fight at people. And people are spending, they're getting ready. And, but then there's the counterbalance, which we're going to see throughout the rest of the episode. 
That's right. So I think the key characteristic here is debt burdens generally are low and balance sheets generally are healthy. So people feel optimism because they think that there's lots of room to grow and there's lots of room to leverage up, which is as we're going to see a double edged sword. By leverage up, you mean uh, taking all the equity out of your house and use it for investments? Ooh, that sounds like a fun thing to do. What could possibly go wrong? Let's find out with number two. Okay, number two is the bubble. Now, talks of bubbles, this is something you'll hear quite a bit when asset classes start to get hot and frothy. And I think one of the big, big, big indicators of this is once you start hearing your neighbor and your mailman and everyone and everyone and their cat kind of talking about the great success that they've had in a certain asset class. Now, this is something that happened before in the late 1920s, before the Great Depression, where everyone, everyone who didn't understand stocks or what they were investing in was borrowing money to do so. And it has eerily familiar tones to what's happening today in Canada in the housing market. Yeah. So yeah, there's really two good examples. So again, let's pick on mid 2020, where you've got the tech and healthcare stocks, which just soared like crazy. They kind of helped carry a lot of mutual funds and seg funds out of the pandemic in the green, but it can only go on for so long. And I've seen more than a handful of fancy seg funds that opened up recently focused on like tech and healthcare that are like down like 30, 40%. But that was the sentiment at the time. If you are not in tech and healthcare, you are losing money. You're a fool for not doing it. And for us specifically in Canada, you can see the exact same thing with the housing market over the last really four or five years, but it just got accelerated to new extremes in like 2019 through 2020, where, yeah, if you didn't leverage yourself and get every single ounce of available debt in your hands as possible, you were seen as a fool and a loser and you were falling behind. But as we see what happened, that kind of forced a bubble to creep up where houses, which were worth like, okay, where we are, a house that was like seven, $800,000, which is just a shack in Metro Vancouver is now like one and a half million dollars still. Yeah, and sentiment is a huge part of this because fear of missing out is real. And people that would never consider stepping into these asset classes, whether it's the stock market or housing, suddenly feel like you said, that they've missed something out. They've missed something for their families. Or you got real estate agents saying that housing prices will never decline in Canada. It'll only go up forever. Another classic, classic symptom of a bubble. People think that because things have been going so well, they're going to continue. But what they're missing is that the reason these prices are accelerating at these incredible levels and that these assets are inflating at these incredible levels is because people are leveraging to do so. You've got more people in the game. You've got more people borrowing more money. And really, there's only so much to go around. People will naturally reach a limit of how much they can borrow and how much they can lever. And when it kind of hits that critical mass, that's when a bubble is in trouble. So a bubble can start essentially as being something that's fairly justifiable, like in the stock market, if it's a bull market, that's a normal good thing. It's when that sentiment changes and when people go from, you know, taking advantage of something to really stepping in all in so that they're not losing, it's almost a flip in the sentiment, that fear versus 
<laughs> fear and greed, I guess, versus just the normal desire for a profit. Yeah, and when we're kind of trying to break down what a bubble is, uh, the book we're going through has a pretty good list of characteristics to look for. When you're trying to recognize a bubble, I know we're kind of in the very beginnings of hindsight mode right now, but still, this is good to understand. You find things like uh, prices are high relative to what is a traditional measure. So like a house that's gone from $800,000 to $1.5 million, or a stock has gone from $20 to $130 within like six months. You'll see that uh, prices are discounting future rapid price appreciation from these high levels. So a lot of interesting things kind of going on. And then there's the overall bullish sentiment that things are going to go up forever. Just spend, 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 and we'll never have to worry. And there'll never be a crash ever again. But I know this is silly to say, but this is part of the psychology behind the scenes where people get so invested, they get so enthusiastic that they have to kind of stay positive to justify really a lot of the times the high price they spent to get into this beginning of a bubble market because they didn't get in at the beginning and they just kind of followed along and now they're trapped at these higher valuations. Well, and I've heard people literally say that kind of verbatim uh, comes to mind with stocks as we were going through that crazy year we had last year when stocks were up 20, 30% in some places, even funds, right? Um, and people were saying they're only going to go up and up and up. And same thing with the housing market. Oh, well, uh, immigration, there's new people coming in. There's going to be new demand. There's low supply. Whatever justification people have, it still has to be financed through debt. And debt is only as good as a lender's willingness to provide it. And the person taking the debt's ability to service that debt. So as interest rates change, there can be great vulnerabilities that build in, whereas while we're in this, this creation of a bubble, things still do look justifiable. It's not until the bubble is kind of full-sized and almost ready to go that you start to realize that, hey, things are not as good as we thought. And that's where Cam's list that he's reading from the book uh, is is helpful. So I'll let you continue. Yeah, so I got a couple more things on this list. So this kind of ties in. So purchases are being financed by high leverage. So like we said before, people just matching out their age locks, finding whatever source of credit, no matter the interest rate possible, so they can go out and buy these stocks and buy these homes. Okay, and I'm going to jump into there as well. There is normally an increase in lower quality creditors that emerge at this point in time. Yeah, you get a lot of creative mortgage lenders at this point or new uh, brokerage firms or, well, do we want to poke fun at the FTX crypto thing that just crashed? And there's been a couple other REITs that have crashed. So yeah, the, all those kind of sketchier, high growth, everything's going to go good forever firms start to pop up. Well, that's right. And they usually have a lot looser standards than the ones that are properly regulated, like you'd see with banks or other federally rated or even, pardon me, federally regulated or even uh, provincially regulated institutions. So whenever someone can't qualify through the normal channels, but hey, my friend's neighbor has a great deal for you, we can get you into this you know, subprime lender that maybe, okay, that doesn't sound so great, but they're not going to say it that way, but they can get you the debt you want 
if you're willing to A, pay a little bit more, and B, take on a little extra risk because you're not going through all the stress testing that everyone else has to go through. So when more and more of the population are going this route to finance these purchases, that sets up a vulnerability in their personal balance sheets. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, to kind of get back to this, so a lot of this stuff has been kind of like individual, but one of the big ones is also having to deal with uh, commercial and industrial companies really building up inventories, getting up new lines of contracts and just locking down supplies and just getting ready to stockpile like crazy because they're anticipating things to keep going great. But again, that doesn't last forever. And like even now, I was just at a fancy fund manager meeting a couple of days ago and they were talking about how uh, shipping rates have collapsed. Uh, inventories are at record high, so manufacturing demand is down. But so that that's kind of the opposite. Where at one point he had these companies just stockpiling inventory and stockpiling raw goods because they thought it was going to be great. But then the counterbalance is all of a sudden they have too much inventory, so the manufacturing starts to shut down, and that kind of builds into a couple of the next steps. And then the last two is like like I already mentioned, new buyers who had never ever thought about the market before have jumped in so we saw this with real estate we saw this with crypto we saw this with nasdaq stocks people who just didn't want to miss out so they started throwing money at this thing and for a lot of them it was right at the wrong time at the, right at the end of the bubble stage right because it has to get to the point where everyone thinks this is a good idea and like i said it's largely supported by additional people and additional leverage so when you look at it rationally, how could it continue on unless there's an endless supply of people and leverage? Yeah, and sort of the last defining characteristic of bubble is uh, monetary policy. And well, we saw it with housing where they kind of kept interest rates at a very, very low rate for absolutely as long as possible to kind of encourage everyone to do this, whether it with investments or stocks. But the overuse of those low interest rates kind of fueled into this bubble, which gave people the ability to keep spending money they didn't have. Monetary policy has always been a double-edged sword. By that I mean, when the central bank is trying to stimulate growth in the economy by lowering interest rates, people see that as an opportunity to take advantage and borrow. So while the economy is growing, Low interest rates that are causing people to borrow can allow them to borrow more than they would be able to borrow under normalized interest rate scenarios. And that inadvertently, over time, increases asset prices in that classification, like we saw in the housing market. Yeah, uh, I'll kind of give like a crude metaphor to kind of explain all this. So imagine you got a really, really fast car and you got some nitrous oxide in it the low interest rates is that nitrous oxide. So one day you want to go really fast. So you hit the button, you redline it, and you just go, 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 go. But you never turn the button off. And eventually the engine just gets hotter and hotter until it explodes and the car just stops. That's what happens when you have low interest rates for too long. You overcharge the motor, you get the economy going too fast for too long, and then just boom. And then one day it doesn't work anymore. So you need a tow truck to haul it in and get it overhauled. Well, and this is the danger zone that we're kind of alluding to here. And we talked about it a bit last week in last week's podcast as well, where when you keep hitting zero in terms of, or the lower effective bound on the interest rate policy where, you know, there's not a lot of benefit of going lower or you just can't go any lower as a central bank, 
that's when the trouble starts because they need room to maneuver to successfully orchestrate these expansions and contractions in the economy. So let's talk about the top of the market because this is the thing that you really can't see until it's come and gone. Yeah, so uh, for our purposes on the stock side, we're going to call the top December 2021. And on the real estate side, we're going to call it probably what April, May 2022. I think over the summer as well, the real estate market was, well, it was probably slowing, but these things always lag. Yeah, so the top kind of classically is when the leveraging has happened and the market is over leveraged and overpriced. Those are kind of typical signs that things maybe can't go on forever, but sentiment is still in the place where people think that it will. The good times are rolling and why would they stop? And why would you want to think it was going to stop if you just bought in at a really high price? Yeah, if you want a good example, like even right now, things are kind of slowing down, but you still have the energy sector, which still hasn't really reached their true top yet. But at the same time, you know, there's trouble because all these profits they're taking in, they're not reinvesting into development. They're pushing everything into dividend. So even they know internally that this won't last forever, but still a lot of people are over-investing because really that's the only thing in the positive right now. And that's really going to be probably the last sector to kind of fall into the depression right here that we're going through. Well, yeah. And if we're kind of looking backwards again and looking for the top, that's when the economy is still looking pretty good. So that is characterized by unemployment being pretty low. Now, you're going to start to see inflation rise in a lot of cases at this point in time, which is kind of what spurs on these big decisions that the central bankers will have to make in the future about what to do to cool it, which is exactly the situation we find ourselves in today. Well, yeah, we've kind of gone from like less than 1% interest rate to like a 3.75, but even, yeah, that uh, asset management lunch I was at with all the fund managers, they're saying with the US side, don't be surprised if it goes like five to five and a half percent on their side, because the Americans are being a bit more aggressive on just cutting off inflation at the knees. But that's really the only big tool, which we'll see that they kind of have in the arsenal right now, because they've already done the throw money at the problem during COVID. So they have to kind of only use this interest rate option right now because it's the easiest tool to use and it causes the least amount of pain, which is difficult for some people to hear, but it's a lot better than austerity, heavy taxation, and a lot of the other options that are available. Well, that's right. And it'll essentially slow lending down. I mean, it can hurt asset prices, but that's kind of baked into this and demand will slow as a result. Now, when things start to go badly, you have to make the distinction of if you've entered into a normal recession, which is basically when monetary policy is still usable, workable, effective, or if you've fallen into a depression. Now, that's an even scarier word for a lot of people than recessions because, A, I mean, it's usually characterized by a much larger decrease in wealth or a bigger drop in the stock market, bigger correction in the housing market. But essentially, when interest rates can't be dropped any further, there's a danger of hitting that zero over and over and over again. And there's really nowhere to go except using these other tools that we talked about last week, which are really fiscal policy, higher taxation, trying to redistribute wealth and austerity, which is basically letting people face the consequences of the debt that they took, which can be very, very painful and can lead to 
losing homes, it can lead to losing assets, and depressions are typically much longer and harder to get out of than a traditional recession. Now, when you're in a recession, cutting interest rates usually, it has a positive effect, right? Because people will borrow more, wealth will rise in terms of the asset classes that they're purchasing, economic activity will get stimulated, and it's costing less to do that because your debt servicing cost, which is tied to the interest rate, is going to be lower. Now, this can't happen as effectively in depressions. So at that point in time, there's a greater vulnerability in the system. And you have to really look at the amount of debt that you're holding and your ability to service it at higher interest rates. Yeah, a lot of the back end stuff that happens during depression is like governments and central banks trying to get debt and wealth back into balance. There is just too much debt in the system. A lot of it is bad. So a lot of the corrective measures are to either devalue that debt or to use interest rates to make wealth worth more, which is probably the crude way to say it. But it's just to bring a balance back where before debt was good and it was free flowing, but now it is burdensome. And all these tools are just to kind of get debt back under control on a large scale, be it through quantitative easing, throwing money at people, canceling out debt, mergers and acquisitions, or even uh, governments creating like nationalized companies to assume a lot of the bad debt just to kind of get the risk out of the economy, to get the confidence back up and to force people who actually will spend money back to the place where they can spend it freely again to jumpstart the rest of economy. Because this isn't just like a sector by sector thing. This is a across the board, everyone is suffering kind of situation. Well, that's right. And this is where defaults and restructurings are happening. So that's the scary part. But um Remember what I said at the very beginning, one person's debts are another person's assets. One person's income is another person's spending. So when we see these assets fall, that affects both sides of the equation. And that's why banks can fail or banks can need bailouts or get into serious financial difficulty themselves when the population is in trouble. And that's why when people can't spend anymore, the economy can be in trouble because they're paying more to service their debts. Now, when we look at the tools that are used traditionally to deal with these, we've talked about them before, things like austerity, uh, debt defaults and restructurings, debt monetization and money printing and wealth transfers, which is basically taxation and, and fiscal policy, or trying to get money out of the hands of people that have it, uh, the wealthy into people that don't, uh, with varying degrees of successfulness, uh, depending on what period of time and what tools you're looking at. But I think one of the biggest challenges is when a central bank or even when a government is faced with this, there's tremendous pressure politically, there's lots of people suffering at this point in time, and the policymakers can hesitate sometimes. And sometimes they don't know how to handle things properly because none of the options sound good. It's kind of trying to manage the pain and figure out how do we either spread this out so that it's a less impact to a greater number of people, or how do we reduce the impact overall to the economy so that the economy can now get better and pull out of it. And then everybody is on a positive upward trend again. Yeah, this can come either from the governments or even companies like we saw uh, TD and I believe it was CIBC come out recently and say that 
if mortgage rates go up and interest rates keep soaring, they're just going to allow people to offset the percentage of interest and principal. So they'll keep your mortgage rate the same, but you'll be paying more interest and less principal. You're going to see a lot more of these kind of rejigging of things happening in the future because, yeah, the, the governments, they tend to be resistant to hurt the people that vote for them. I was talking to Christine about this. Governments are apprehensive to upset people because, well, in Canada, we get a really low voter turnout rate. Typically, this is between like 55 and 65%. Even just doing a quick look at uh, Elections Canada. So the last election in 2021, voter turnout rate was 62.25%, which is kind of in the middle of where we usually are. But the point of it is, so for the Liberals to get their minority government, it only took them 32.6% of the vote, which ended up being about 5.5 million, compared to the Conservatives who got 33.7% of the vote for 5.7 million. So it doesn't take that much of a higher percentage than that. Typically, anything over 35% recently has been a majority government. It's no surprise then that governments will be hesitant to really upset the apple cart in different areas and different demographics because it only takes a really a couple of small percentage points to tip an election. So it gets difficult knowing that you are going to upset this core group of people and you don't want to lose your jobs because of it. So they will make decisions which will benefit them in the long run to make that core group of people happy, which they know full well through Stats Canada, what kind of people those are, which is why you'll hear more talk about bailing out the individual homeowner probably in this round of recession than you would talk about bailing out the banks directly in Canada. Well, and I think short-term thinking is always going to be one of the largest failings in politics because... Your uh, time horizon is usually no longer than your elected term. So we'll stay out of commenting on politics more than that. Yeah, because a lot of this isn't just managing money. It's about managing debt, which is the thing which can appear and disappear. So in good times, debt appears and then debt, it just turns into money, essentially. And then with a depression, when debt disappears, the possibility of that debt turning into someone else's income, that is what disappears during this time. And this is what they're trying to manage because there is more, how do I say this? There is more debt than currency currently. And when that falls out of whack, that's where you get this depression recession, where no longer do you have this debt, which can convert into income. You just have debt, which converts into nothing really. So read the book. There's tons of detail on all of that there. But I do want to read something because I think it's it's relative to where we are today. Uh, so this is going to be read verbatim from the book. And um, essentially, it with, it's with regards to money printing, which is something that happens prolifically to get out of these cycles by central banks. Uh, so I quote, People ask if printing money will raise inflation. It won't if it offsets falling credit and the deflationary forces are balanced with this reflationary force. That's not a theory. It's been repeatedly proven out in history. Remember, spending is what matters. A dollar of spending paid for with money has the same effect on prices as a dollar of spending paid for with credit. By printing money, the central bank can make up for the disappearance of credit with an increase in the amount of money. This printing then takes on the form of central bank purchases of government securities and non-government assets such as corporate securities, equities, and other assets, which is reflected in money growth at an extremely fast rate at the same time as credit and real economic activity are contracting. So let's transition now to the next step, which is called the beautiful deleveraging. And the 
Beautiful deleveraging is all about how this is managed. So it is the combination of those four measures that we talked about before, which are austerity, debt defaults, restructuring, debt monetization, money printing, and wealth transfers. It's all about the levers that government and the central banks will pull to manage the situation and how smoothly people can return back into balance. Yeah, so an example of this would be the uh, the curb checks that went out during COVID. That was one of those levers they got pulled to kind of keep the economy going until things kind of normalized again. So it's just, yeah, the combination of those four things is if it's done right, then you start to get out of, well, you can start to see the sunlight through the forest, so to speak. And in a very basic way, income needs to grow faster than debt. Because the big problem with people that get stuck in the debt cycle is their income has not kept up with their ability to service the debt. And that can be true for an individual. It can be true for a government, for a central bank, for a country, you name it. Yeah, so kind of the core point of the beautiful leveraging is just getting all of the different policies from governments and the central banks to kind of work together and it actually start to work for the benefit to kind of get everyone out and to get income coming back in so that the debt balance is back in order. So there's more income coming in and the weightiness of debt is lowered. So people feel a bit more optimistic to go out and either buy some of these debts, go and invest in other areas of the economy. It's really when the money can start to flow in a way which doesn't cause more debt and doesn't cause inflation. Okay, so the second last stage is kind of called the uh, pushing on a string. So really, this is the the last stage before normalcies. So by this point, uh, central banks will have started lowering interest rates, but at the same time, they have to do it at a rate which will kind of keep the economy going without getting back into either another bubble or another recession. This is probably the hardest point because people are ready to go as like horses at a race, ready to go and jump out of the gate. But if you turn the interest rates down too fast, you will just force another bubble to happen, which is what we're in right now, kind of coming out of the COVID crash, where this is kind of like number two. We were kind of scheduled the way things have gone over the last eight years to kind of hit this again. But yeah, this is kind of like a double dip that we're going into right now. And the pushing of the string is making sure that we can walk slowly out of the recession without triggering a third bump for us right now. So for normalcy to occur and normalization being the last step, there does have to be some kind of deleveraging and there does have to be a new respect for debt that I think people miss when throughout your entire lifetime, debt has been easy, credit has not been difficult, you've never had trouble paying. No one's really experienced that level of pain in their lifetimes before. So it almost creates this new level of respect towards debt and a new level of personal understanding for I really shouldn't take any more than I can afford to manage even at higher interest rates. Now, that has to be something that's done not just on a household level, but as as countries and stuff like that. And you can talk for hours about the effects of currencies and things like that on all of this. Well, the whole thing with normalization too is typically this whole process is supposed to take five to 10 years, which is why it was such a shock with the uh, the COVID crash where you had the, the stocks market bottom out in March, 2020, and then it hit its peak in December, 2021. And then we're right back into another cycle here. So I think what we're in now is probably the, the true recovery phase, not just for Canada, but you can see it's 
for the bulk of the world, we're all kind of dealing with the whole inflation thing as well. Like I know we him and haw about our uh, six, seven, eight percent inflation, but it's a whole lot better than Turkey with 83% inflation or other countries, which are struggling even higher with dealing with their stuff. Cause what we didn't talk about today was it's a lot harder for other countries that are leveraged in debt and other currencies. That adds a whole another layer of complexity to all this so we kind of have it a little easier in canada u.s and part of the eurozone but yeah so these processes take time really in many ways we kind of started to get into the early stages probably like 2018 2019 when the housing market really started to establish itself as the great alternative to all other types of investing yeah that it finally peaked a couple of years ago with then the covid rush but really we are in year four of this and we probably have another two three years to go before we reach true normalcy with the conversations i've been having with a lot of the reps with the the companies we represent at braun i'm hearing a lot more that 2023 is going to be rough it's going to be dragged out we're going to be a it's going to be a recession People are going to lose jobs. Markets are going to fall back down. And then 2024, we'll probably see the full wave of the real estate crash starting to happen in Canada. And then the rest of 2024 will be digging out of the hole. And then really 2025 will probably be the first real normal year that we've seen since 2019. But that's just our best guess. I mean, a million things can change between now and then. So that's why it's important for us to kind of stay on top of this stuff as it unfolds and make sure that we have that understanding of what has happened in the past, because it really is our best guess at what will happen in the future. History does repeat itself. The names and faces change. The circumstances, unfortunately, and the decisions that we make as a result of that can be more predictable than we would like to imagine. Okay, so that's how we looked at Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio. AKA, learning from the past to predict the present. <laughs> Say that three times fast. I sure couldn't. Anyways, if you like talking about economics, we're not economists by any stretch. We're just uh, two people interested in this material. Feel free to give us a call at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com, or check us out on Facebook at our Facebook page and discussion group. If you'd rather just listen in and hear us digress at great lengths each week, feel free to continue to do so. So until the next time, take care and all the best. So that's how we looked at Ray Dalio's Principles for Navigating Bid Debt. So that's how we looked at Principles for Navigating Ray Dalio's Big Debt Firm. <laughs> Let me try that again.